0: Hello, this is Tim Conley from the International Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to Trading Thoughts, where we discuss how business is shaping our world. Today, ICC elected Ajay Banger, president and CEO of MasterCard as its chair back in June. I spoke with Ajay about his vision for how ICC can continue to advocate for peace and prosperity for all, especially in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also discussed the requirements for operating a values-based organization and what steps governments and businesses can take to save our SMEs from the economic and human consequences associated with the pandemic. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Ajay, thank you for joining us today. First and foremost, how have you been doing over the past couple of months? As the head of a company with billions of your clients, customers around the world, how has MasterCard responded to the economic and health consequences associated with COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so it's been a tough period for everybody. And I'm, you know, the first thing you've got to start with is to hope that everybody who you work with and your friends and everyone else is safe from what we're all going through. And that's kind of what we did with our employees. We first focused on our employees and tried to make them feel confident and safe, both at the fact of health, but also in the fact that we tried to take away from them the feeling of stressing about their jobs. So the first thing we told them is that uh, we would have no COVID-related layoffs during this year. And therefore, instead of worrying about their jobs, they should focus on their customers and their family and themselves and and make sure that they get through this period in a good way. Because as you know, it's not just your physical health, it's also mental health that people are stressing about during the last six months, given all kinds of reasons from confinement at home to absence of social contact to fears about their family to concerns and issues about, uh, about their own jobs and their futures. There's many stresses and you don't wanna be the one adding to that stress. You wanna take that away so they can focus on what they're there for. So that brings you to how do you do well with your customers? And I think there what we focused on was trying to make sure that our systems were operative and capable of running the way they should. After all, when you use your payment system, whether it's through a card or a phone or Apple Pay or uh, online through e-commerce or PayPal, what you really want is that your transaction should go through seamlessly. And so everything should be safe, simple and smart for you, right? That's what you care about as a consumer. So we focused on making sure that our transactions are working properly and working appropriately through this. That's the second uh, big thing that happened. And then the aspect of working well with clients and banks and, and, and merchants and governments, there, there's been a lot of energy around trying to find a way to keep in close contact with your clients, even though you're doing so remotely. I think that's been interesting because for a while, those clients were also quite happy that you weren't coming in. After all, nobody really wanted to meet anyone physically. Right? They were also not exactly going to work. So so this whole thing worked really well. But I think as markets are opening up, as they're getting to the stages of normalization, not as well as we were doing pre-COVID till we get a vaccine, but better than we were doing in the second quarter of this year as a society. I think you need to find a way for uh, that client uh, contact to re-energize. Just as I think we need to find a way for human interaction and creativity and culture development in a company to re-energize. So one of the things we're now working our way through is how to make employees feel confident about coming back to work uh, in, in the office. That's what we're up to now.
0: And what are your thoughts in general on the changes we are seeing and may see in the months and years to come as a result of COVID nineteen?
1: Yeah, so I think there's well, there's there's the immediate term, or let's say the next three, six, nine months, and then there's what I think really is happening underlying in changes that are running through the system. So let's for a second talk about the next three, six, nine months, and we laid out. Uh, four stages that we felt we would all go through and that's how our company should run through those stages so the stages are our containment which was when things were shutting down every day which is the month of march for most parts of the world february and january for china but for most parts of the world it was in, it was in march and and then we said the next stage would be stabilization you kind of hit bottom And, uh, and, you know, restaurants are closed and people aren't going out and you're all locked up, but you are shopping online for groceries, for home care and hygiene and, you know, things that are essentials. And then people began to turn towards what I would call normalization, which is when, even though we were not fully reopened, you began to do things like home improvement, or you began to start outdoor dining, or the beginnings of coming back to office, or, uh, nature, activities of that type of a pent-up. But you probably won't get to things like mass entertainment or cross-border travel for another, I would say, period of time. Don't know how long that'll take. But you kind of get these stages and phases. And then the last phase would be what I would call growth. So think of containment, stabilization, normalization, which is kind of where the world feels right now. And it's not really normal. It's normal compared to the past of the last six months. But it's not really normal pre-COVID. That would be the growth phase, which I think will need some form of vaccine widely distributed, well available, with enough people having taken it on around the world for a level of confidence to come back about business and personal travel and the like. So that to me is how I see the next few months go by. I visualized vaccines being available in scale probably only towards the second half of next year. So you may start getting them to be available earlier, but to get them adequately around the world where you can create confidence and travel and meetings again is probably the second half of next year. So we've got to see our way through some more time as yet. But your question also is a little bit about the underlying changes. And I think there there's a four or five things that are happening in society. The first is the obvious one around digital. I mean, look, you and I are having this conversation on Zoom. In a normal time, I would have been sitting in Paris with the ICC office with you having a conversation or at some other such location. I travel 200 plus days a year till this year. And now for six months, I haven't traveled a day. And so, so that's a big change. And yet work continues and it's continued relatively seamlessly. I think that's the digital part of what we're all doing. E-commerce, you know, generational gaps and embracing e-commerce have disappeared during this period. So I think digital is here. The trend that was already there probably got a turbo charge from what's happened over the last six months. Coming with that is, I think, a deeper issue around changes in consumer preferences, not just for digital, because I think when... Physical is more widely available. There will be a rebalancing of what we are seeing today, where physical will increase in its usage. You can see it already in our data and statistics on consumer spending. Because we are, by nature, human beings are social animals, and physical interaction is part of being that kind of an animal. And so, so I think you'll find a rebalancing, but with a higher level of digital than there ever has been. It's changing everything. But with it are coming clear preferences around hygiene safety, security, data, privacy. Uh, I think you're going to see that evolve over the next couple of years. You can see it in our business directly in the usage of contactless payments because you don't touch anything. But, But I think it goes way beyond that. And there's going to be many more aspects of this changing consumer preference. So that's the second thing. The third thing which comes with all this is what I would call loosely precautionism. And that's not really protectionism in the sense of closing down borders. It's not really nationalism in the sense of saying it's all about us in our own country. I think most countries still recognize that the connectivity of tissue across countries is essential for prosperity and growth. But. Precautionism, where you're saying, I'm going to first make sure my own citizenry is safe. I'm going to first make sure that my citizens' data is kept well. I'm going to make sure that my local businesses are protected to some extent through this unbelievable crisis. That precautionism is here in a fairly strong way. And the negative side of it is nationalism and protectionism. Uh, But the positive side of it is that maybe we'll find the right way to thread the needle where we can help societies feel comfortable locally while still being global citizens. I think that's going to be an interesting challenge for society over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the the, the the fourth one that's of interest to me is um, consolidation. I think larger companies have come through this crisis better capitalized, liquid, equipped. You can see it in the retail sector. And I wonder whether that's a trend where, You know, what we had seen over the last decade was the proliferation of new entrants. And in a way, digital created the opportunity for new entrants and innovation. And capital flooded into those areas. With this current situation, what I think should not happen would be to stifle that innovation or creativity. But it may well. And I think we're going to have to make sure that we find a way to enable the strong to be there for us but also to enable innovation and creativity to be well flourishing for the future. Because you need SMEs to flourish. You need innovation to flourish. That's what we all want, right? We want new, cheaper, smarter ways to do the same thing and do better things. So that's really important. And then the, the last two, one is supply chains. I think there's an enormous amount of work going on on rethinking supply chains, the aspect of efficiency versus resiliency in a crisis, and I don't think it's either or. I think people will find a way to navigate where they can find a little bit of both. So I don't think you should see all mass changes, but I do think you should see a reassessment of the importance of efficiency and the importance of resiliency in your supply chains. And I think that connects to SMEs because most supply chains are built off SMEs, and SMEs are really struggling through this crisis for all kinds of reasons. So there's some work there. I know the ICC has taken the SME issue upon itself as well in many ways. And then the last one is the environment. And my predecessor, Paul Pullman, is very eloquent about this. He was talking about it on a call that I was on yesterday. But I think building back better requires us to not only think about uh, sustainable growth in the form of inclusive growth, but also sustainable growth in the form of environmental sustainability. Because the climate crisis and the warming of our temperatures and the meaning of that for all of us and our children, I think, is a crisis that is of a far greater magnitude than even COVID has been, despite the horrific nature of what COVID has shown itself to be over the last six months, where thousands and hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives, and millions have lost their livelihoods, I think the climate could be something much worse if we don't do something about it early enough. And I think time's not on our side on that one. Hmm. So that's kind of the, the big picture on this. Now, governments are stepping up through fiscal policy, through monetary policy, through health policy. Some governments are being very far thoughtful on environmental policy. The EU in particular is taking fairly strong steps at this time. But I mean, you know, the, the, the story is yet to be written. The painting is yet to be painted over the next few years kind of thing.
0: Um, you just touched upon this in your last answer, but I think it's worth highlighting again. Uh, you're obviously taking over as chair at ICC at a very critical time for businesses, especially small and medium-sized businesses, which have been, been particularly hit hard by COVID-19. What is your vision for how ICC can continue to advocate uh, for peace and prosperity for all, particularly in light of ICC's Save Our SMEs campaign, which we've uh, launched during this this crisis.
1: Yeah, so Tim, we were originally the merchants of peace, right? And the idea was that trade could bring peace and prosperity because interconnectivity between nations would lead to lower conflict. That was kind of the idea. And it's born true now over the last 50, 60 years, ever since the Second World War, that, that trade and commerce has led to a relatively more peaceful world. That part is correct. But it also has, has, has had consequences that I think we need to pay attention to. Inequality is one of those consequences. Environment and climate change is another one of those consequences. And I think if we are not careful about both of these, I think we could end up with people sort of rejecting the idea of trade Uh, for the wrong reasons. And so my belief is that that commerce and trade and capitalism have done really well on the whole, but like everything else, they need guide rails. They need corrections. They need uh, tender care at the right time. And I think now is the time for society and leaders to step forward to give it that care. So what ICC is doing with SMEs and specific is the subset of that thinking. SMEs are 90% of businesses. They are half of employment and half of GDP. By the way, that's true for New York City, not just Africa or India. So when people think of SMEs, you know, yes, of course, New York City is home to gazillions of Fortune 100 companies, but that's not the point. Despite that, 90 plus percent of employers in New York City are SMEs. Half of employment is SME. Three million people in New York City are SME employed. And, you know, that's just the nature of of economies. And so all of us and our supply chains and and our prosperity is built on the backs of SMEs. And so stepping forward to understand their unique challenges right now and doing something about them is really important. So what the ICC is trying to do is to bring focus and attention and shine light on that issue. But let me give you a couple of specific issues that I worry about within that. And the first one is is the breakdown of global standards. You know, I mean, if every country were to enact its own standards on everything from data to fertilizer to your shampoo to specific clothing, you would end up with a situation where an SME with limited resources is incapable of comprehending and dealing with that complexity. And consequently, they are cut out from the opportunity to be a part of this global social milieu that we're talking about right now. And digital technology can help to, to sort of set, to you know, break down the arbitrage that incumbents have had, but it cannot make it possible if you create a multitude of standards that SMEs cannot navigate through. And therefore, having Some global interoperable standards for products and services that allow SMEs to compete on a level playing field, that's all I'm talking about, a level playing field, is really important. And I think we are losing some of that dialogue because global institutions that were responsible for creating these standards and creating global dialogue around them have not had the credibility over the last decade that they had over the prior four or five decades. So we have a real challenge on this front. So that's one problem. The second problem to me in the SME space is the, the concern I have around uh, protectionism, as I was talking about. If it's precautionism, that's one thing. But protectionism makes it impossible for SMEs to tap into the growth of other economies. And if you think through what China and India and Vietnam and Bangladesh and other countries have achieved over the last two or three decades, they couldn't have done it if their SMEs could not have accessed developed markets elsewhere with the demand that is available in those markets for high-quality produce that these SMEs were able to make. And so I think that's the second problem. And I think a third issue is finance. Now, as of today, uh, it's not as though SME financing has dried up around the world. A lot of governments have stepped in to help. But my memory of the last financial crisis is still raw. And at that time, SME financing dried up pretty quickly. So I think we do need to make sure that trade financing and those kinds of issues are properly discussed at the right level, maybe at the G20 or with the IMF and, and the World Bank and the UN, so that people who care about this cross-border can ensure that we enable SMEs to be prosperous through this period. Lots of governments have done things locally. I'm more worried about the availability of financing for cross-border trade in this specific case. So I think, I think the ICC's attempt to shine a light on all of this is really important. Uh, digital is an important enabler inside all this, but digital can help but cannot solve all these problems. And even digital by itself has the last issue, which is the digital divide. After all, not every country has broadband that works as efficiently as where you and I are living right now. And even in, our, in this country, in the United States, uh, large parts of, of non urban america does not have broadband access of the type that i am used to having for me or my children and india has a bigger problem and you know different countries have issues on this front and so if you're going to be more digital which is where we started with in the first question then you have to worry about about uh, the availability of access as a level playing field as well so there's many aspects to this all of which impact sme and i think that john denton and the icc caring about the topic of SME is absolutely bang on. It is absolutely mission critical to the merchants of peace idea.
0: Um, Picking up on the digital divide issue, uh, as you said, it's clear that many SMEs have lacked the same technological capabilities as their multilateral peers throughout the current pandemic. Uh, This is especially true in the case of companies that sought to transition their operations remotely. I mean, as we're seeing in the case of COVID-19 right now, do you think that SMEs will continue to struggle to keep up with the accelerated rate of growth in the technology sector?
1: Well, you know, the first thing is that uh, we've got to see what happens to SMEs coming out of this crisis. Uh, The New York City Partnership, which I'm a keen part of, published a study recently that said as many as one third of New York City's businesses may not survive. The pandemic. Now uh, that is a actually a frightening number because, as I said, <clears throat> they're ninety plus percent of U.S. business, of New York's businesses. They provide more than half of our employment. Can you imagine what happens if one third of them don't come out of this? So I think we've got a a a crisis of uh, a fairly high and large dimension staring at us. Now policymakers are aware, and the good news is there are lots of things the federal government is trying to do in the United States to help with this. and I think they've really brought the bazookas out in an effort with the Fed to do something about it, the Treasury and the Fed. And you can argue about aspects of implementation, but you cannot argue about the intention of making this better. So I think countries are trying, but I worry about this topic. So uh, the issue of digital is deeply intertwined in this. So I think SMEs are very capable of comprehending and adapting to digital. The question is, they need certain tools. Huh? They need to be able to go online. They need to be able to create their websites. They need to be able to have accounting tools available. They need to be able to have inventory tools, cash management tools, payment and digital acceptance, You know all that stuff. And then most importantly, they need to protect themselves. Cyber security, data, managing their bank accounts, passwords, I mean, the stuff that, Who in an SME has 35 people, one information security officer, one financial officer, one guy to look after treasury? No, they don't. They're everything in one person or two people. And so managing this is not easy. And I think all of us, companies and and institutions, we need to find ways to create the necessary support system for SMEs to tap into this. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I am a co founder along with Sam Parmazano, who used to be the CEO of IBM and a few others, Microsoft and Penny Pritzker, the former Commerce Secretary, for example, uh, we created an institute called the Cyber Readiness Institute. And the task there is to develop tools and learning methods for SMEs to be able to tap into free of cost, which can make them be safer in the cyber world for themselves and for their customers. So that you raise the level of water in the river and you make it harder for the thief to swim. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and that to me is an example of doing something that creates better infrastructure, better foundational principles for SMEs to build on. It doesn't have to be commercial. It can be done the way we just described, which is to let them do it for free. And it's called the Cyber Readiness Institute. And if you have a chance, go online and check them out and you'll see what I'm referring to. One example, there there are many. I'm just giving you the one that I know of intimately. Another one in our own company is something called Digital Doors. So we have, over the course of this crisis, uh, put aside a commitment of $250 million devoted to small businesses around the world to help them get up and going online. So that includes creating your website, getting access to digital payments, cybersecurity, that kind of thing. And, And we're not the only ones. There are others doing this too. My friend Dan Schulman at PayPal is doing it. Others are doing it at IBM, Microsoft. This is not one company, but what I'm trying to say is that there are examples like this, and if we can proliferate these and make them available at scale to SMEs, then I think your question of whether SMEs can come through the digital issue well or not, will depend on how well we create the foundation for them to build off it. So they can focus on running their business, not focus on surviving a new technology, if you know what I mean. Right.
0: Um, Shifting gears back to climate change real quick, Um, you know, you mentioned while the economic and human consequences associated with COVID-19 are severe and deserve global attention, uh, it's also critical that businesses do not lose sight of climate change. Um, in your opinion, how can businesses better uh, adopt sustainable practices such as greater financial inclusion and uh, responsiveness to climate change?
1: Yeah, so, you know, well, we, we will uh, answer in two parts. And the first part is, let me frame for you who, how I've thought about the issues that society and therefore companies face. Companies are a microcosm. We all work in our our societies. And the first realization you need is that that if you look past your toes and you look midway, a little out there, there's no way that you can grow in your company and make it prosper and, and do well if around you there isn't a prosperous society, if there isn't an expanding middle class, if there isn't health and wellness around you, if climate change is not working for you as compared to against you. It's just not going to happen. It's in your own self-interest. And so I've tried to look at things on three sides of a triangle. I struggle to do things in more than three. My head absorbs three wells. So bear with me. One side of the triangle is one versus many. And that's the obvious issue of inclusion. And by the way, it's not just financial inclusion it's inclusion racial inclusion it's inclusion for gender it's inclusion for your sexual orientation it's how you feel about yourself as a person what you what you i should respect you for what you do and how you do not what you look like and where you came from that one versus many that that aspect is one big aspect it's got many things underlying it but it's one angle of the triangle the other side of the triangle is Humanity versus nature, mankind versus nature. Whatever words you want to use, us versus nature. I think that's where climate change, the environment, sustainability of that, doing the right thing, the rising water levels, the availability of drinking water in many countries around the world, the availability of, of good food, the availability of things to those. It gets exacerbated when you combine one versus many with that, because very often the most impacted by this are those who can afford it in the least. And so those two those two sides of the triangle, unfortunately, work rather well together in a negative way. And then the, the base of the triangle is long-term versus short-term. And that, to me, is what actually causes these two sides of the triangle to get a foundation. If we could all think longer-term, if we could look in the middle and not at our toes when walking, we would all be thinking out 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and we'd be thinking about the world we are preparing for our children. And I think we would have a very different way of thinking about the two sides of the triangle that I talked about. And it's true of politicians. It's true of, you know, after all, if a politician is elected for four years, what's the incentive to build an underground rail system as compared to merely some form of a a bus rapid transit system that looks cool, but doesn't actually solve real challenges of environmental change and efficiency. So politicians have this problem. CEOs have the problem, individuals have the problem. And so those three sides of the triangle are kind of what bother me. Mm. The, uh, the part that, that connects to all this, back to your issue of how do companies embrace and leaders embrace doing these things better, is that long term. If you're willing to argue with your employees, with your board, with your investors, about the importance of it being in your own self-interest in a commercially sustainable way, not in a CSR, let me write a check, tick the box way, but to make it part of your business model. Then you can find ways to do this the right way. Paul Polman did that with Unilever and packaging and the use of water. We're doing it with financial inclusion and how we've helped to raise 500 million people out of being excluded into being included over the last few years. We've now doubled that to a billion by 2025 with 50 million micro SMEs back to our earlier conversation, but also 25 million women entrepreneurs back to one versus many. So, You know, Different companies are setting great examples in this space. I think to do that well, you have to have a medium to longer term vision. You've got to have your investors on your side. You've got to have your employees excited about it and your board supporting you. And the only way to do that is to make it part of your business model, not just something you write a check to or you turn your attention to as part of your well-meaning and well-deserved philanthropy.
0: Um Drawing on your experience at MasterCard, what do you consider to be the key elements in leading a values based organization?
1: Boy, uh, So values are mean many different things to many people. so let me let me put that the way I understand this, right? My way is to think about the the attributes that define our culture, our way of behaving. And I think those, you can call them values, you can call them embedded principles, you can call them whatever word. But that's the way we, we we kind of discuss this with our own employees. And I think it starts with um, a few attributes of what I want our employees to be like and behave like. And then it's built on a foundation that I'll come to. So the, the first attribute is, to me, a sense of uh, urgency, of urgency balanced with thoughtfulness so what do i mean by that we're in an industry as as are many others where the only constant is change and technological obsolescence is all around us and there's people innovating all the time and so if you aren't going to have a sense of urgency about embracing change and rushing towards it and making it your friend then you will lose but but you can't do that by not listening to people and understanding the quantum of change going on around you. So the ability to listen and yet take decisions quickly without perfect information, therefore taking thoughtful risks, all that is inside this thoughtful urgency point. And the second one to me is the aspect of being able to think of yourself and not as being confident of how you're growing, but having a sense of competitive paranoia. And what do I mean by that? Uh, that is that you've got to remember that just because you're doing well today doesn't mean you'll do well tomorrow. So you have to have a little bit of FOMO, fear of missing out. And you've got to have, you know, if you if you were here, you would see just the back of my computer is a little sign that says question everything always. And that is that I'm not satisfied. You're gonna keep raising the bar and always wondering what are you not doing properly and what are you missing out on, and so that is kind of the second big attribute that that uh, that matters a lot. And I think if you get these ideas of thoughtful risk taking, combined with urgency, combined with listening to people carefully, but having the the willingness to take that risk and take a quick decision, combined with comparative paranoia, and then the last part is put decision-making right at the front end, closest to where the customer is. So people are empowered to take a decision. But then they must feel accountable because then you can't come back and tell me, hey, that guy said this and that guy said that. Not going to work because I told you that you're empowered. So empowerment and accountability come together. So those values, those that culture is kind of what we want to do. Our idea is to be a winning culture. We want to win. but we want to win in a foundation of decency so that's the decency foundation and so I, I tell all my employees that when i was growing up when i was much younger i was told iq mattered when i went to business school i learned about eq dealing with complicated circumstances and i'm saying now you need to understand dq your decency quotient which is you know bring your heart and your mind to work make people want to work for you make people want to work with you Make people see you as somebody who has their hand on their back, not in their face. And that doesn't mean that you have to be nice or kind. It means you have to be fair and transparent. And I think if you can find that balance, and it's really hard because I make mistakes on that balance every day. It's very easy to say it, it's really hard to do it. But if you live it, you get better every day. And so those cultural attributes to win combined with this decency quotient, is to me the culture that MasterCard is trying to put right into its foundations so we can be an even better company tomorrow.
0: Uh, You published an inspiring statement regarding the Black Lives uh, Matter movement. How can the business sector play a role in this difficult but hugely important conflict?
1: Yeah, look, I think that Equality of all types, as we were just saying, one side of the triangle. Racial equality is very much a part of that. So is gender equality, so is your sexual orientation. I don't think any one of those is more important than the other, just to be clear. So I don't want one issue to mean that we only fix one and not the other. Just as it felt like everybody was focused on gender for a while. Now, let's not lose that and only focus on race. We need to fix equality. Unfortunately, a really transparent and awful part of that is race and ethnicity. And you know, if you kind of look like what I do, and I'm not black, but I'm brown, and I certainly don't look like the average guy in a Fortune 500 company or Fortune 100 company as a CEO, you, I've been lucky. I was in companies like Citigroup and here, where I don't believe what I look like matters. I believe that both at City and at Mastercard, all that matters is, like I said, what you do and how you do it. But that may, I'm lucky. That doesn't allow for a fair, equal society. Luck should not be what we rely on. We should have intent. And so, my belief is that that if we don't do something about this obvious issue, this obvious cliff that we are standing at the tip of, which is the issue of how we have been dealing with race in this country, then I think shame on us. We've had too many incidents over the last 20 years that I've been in this country where it feels like we've become aware of solving the problem. And then time goes by and we go right back to where we were. And then another Eric Garner or another George Floyd happens. And once again, we rise up in revolt and disgust. And then, unfortunately, once again, we let it go by. So my hope is that we all as leaders will not let that happen. And I think that requires us to not only do something in a company about how you recruit people or how you train them or how you develop them. So it's not just statistics of recruitment. It's actually caring about their growth in the company. It's a pathway to prosperity. It's the same for small businesses. Why is it that Black people don't get access to capital the way that others do? Why cannot community financial institutions that were created to help disadvantaged communities, why don't they get enough capital to be able to go and seed capital for minority-owned businesses? We've got to change this. And, And I think there is a realization among certainly politicians and society today. The question is, will we have the energy to take this all the way? And I'm reminded, as I've said in a different context of a Leonardo da Vinci quote, which is that it's, you know, it's not, it's not enough. You've got to do, you've got to really do. It's not enough to just be willing. You've got to actually do something about it. It's not enough to, to just talk about this. And I think you can, we talk a lot, we've got to do something about it. Because I feel like something that's been of this nature for hundreds of years, boy, what a shame if he can't fix it today. And, and I'm saying this from the viewpoint of the US. I'm well aware that, that racism and the absence of equality across multiple forms is a problem across the world. So don't get me wrong. I'm being self-critical of our country because I think you've got to first fix your own home before you can tell somebody else. But let's be aware that this is a problem across the world.
0: Hmm. Um. Ajit, thank you for joining Trading Thoughts. I found the conversation to be very inspiring and powerful. Uh, If there's anything else you would like to add or tell our listeners today, the floor is totally yours.
1: Nothing, just that I I would tell you that the one thing you should know is that this all sounds very simple to do and it sounds like we've figured it all out. I think these are amazingly difficult issues from dealing with the crisis, to dealing with racism and equality, to dealing with climate change, to dealing with income inequality. These are all very difficult topics. And and I think the most important thing is to know that you will make mistakes along the way. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you care enough to take the risk, to make the mistake, so you can learn from it and do even better next time? And if you do care enough to do that, then we all deserve to feel better about where we could end up. And if you don't, then it's going to be a hard period. So we've got to be optimistic, and I'm an eternal optimist, that we will do better out of this. We will build back better.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of Trading Thoughts. We would like to thank Ajay for participating in today's episode. For more information on the International Chamber of Commerce's response to COVID-19, please visit our website at iccdoibo.org. That's org. Share your thoughts about today's episode on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook using hashtag TradingThoughts.
1: See you next time.